This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Let's go to God in prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, our prayer this morning is very simple. Pray, Lord, that you would reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart and tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, I pray that you would do that in us today through the power of your Holy Spirit, the work of your word. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to continue our study in Habakkuk. If you want to start heading there in your Bibles. I wonder if you've ever had an experience with a really bad person, like evil, someone who... Maybe had something off or really wanted to harm you. You know, like when you ask your spouse what they want to do for your anniversary and they give you that panicked look like, what anniversary? Or when you tell your three-year-old not to dump their milk on the floor and they look you straight back in the eyes and say, or what? And then dump their milk in the floor. You know, someone who thinks their created purpose is to do you harm. Now, of course, I'm joking about the spouse and the kids part, sort of. But there are people out there who are evil, who do evil things, people who want power and recognition, and they don't care who they step on to get it. People who want to fulfill their, their sensual desires, and they don't care who they harm to do it. And unfortunately, some of us have had experiences with them. But have you ever asked, why you? Have you ever asked why you had to experience that insult, that heartache, that pain, that violence at the hands of another and others don't? It's that why me question that's born not out of of self-pity, but genuine confusion that deserves an answer as to why God would allow these kinds of things to happen to people He says He loves. Last week we heard Habakkuk's first complaint where he asked God, you know, why are you standing idly by while the people are breaking your law? Can't you see what's going on here? To which God responded, look, if you could see what I'm going to do, Habakkuk, you wouldn't believe it. I'm going to bring the Babylonians in to conquer and exile my own people because of their sin. Now, I've titled this sermon, Can You Do That, God? Because after God told Habakkuk he wouldn't believe it if he saw it, guess what's the first thing we're going to hear this morning from Habakkuk? We're going to hear Habakkuk say, I don't believe you. You can't do that, God. It's amazing how often God's right, isn't it? So let's look first at Habakkuk's 
second complaint, beginning in verse 12 of Habakkuk chapter 1, where he asks God, how can you use unrighteous people to judge righteous people? He's asking him, how can you use unrighteous people to judge righteous people, beginning in verse 12? Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to the dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Have you ever been confused about something? A thought, a process, something you were trying to work out in your mind, so you had to kind of talk it out with somebody to, to figure out what you were thinking. Well, well that's kind of what we see here in verses 12 and 13. Habakkuk's so shocked about what God just said that he's kind of trying to talk out the thoughts that, that are just flooding into his mind. Notice how in verses in both 12 and 13, he follows the same pattern. At the beginning of both of those verses, he begins with a divine attribute of God, which is followed at the end of both of those verses with, with why he doesn't then believe or understand how God can do what he just said he was going to do. Look, look at the beginning of verse 12. Habakkuk says, Aren't you from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? He's describing God's power and, 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 and eternalness and holiness, which then leads to his confusion at the end of verse 12, where he says, We shall not die. In other words, Habakkuk's trying to work this out in his mind. He, he's saying, if you're all-powerful, God, how can you allow this pagan nation to destroy your covenant people? You said you were going to protect us. How can, you, how can you do that? But it's as if that objection causes another objection to tumble into his mind. And then at the beginning of verse, at the beginning of verse 13, he's like, oh, and also, you who are of purer eyes, than to see evil who cannot look at wrong. That's the divine attribute part. And he continues, how can you stand by while these unrighteous pagans conquer your people? How can you allow them to succeed at our expense? It doesn't make any sense, God. How can you do this? He's saying this doesn't feel right. This doesn't sit right with me. And then in verses 14 through 17, watch how Habakkuk just kind of spirals out of control. Like Winnie the Pooh's friend. Eeyore, the theologian. <laughs> he says in verse 14 and 15, Are we just inconsequential sea creatures to be dragged out of the sea in their nets so they can be satisfied? And then he says in verse 16, In fact, God, you know, if you allow this to happen, they're just going to think that their gods are right, and they'll sacrifice more to their gods for such a great catch and how rich it made them. And he concludes in verse 17, What, are you just going to let them take over the whole world? And then I love chapter 2, verse 1, because it proves that anyone says, who says the Bible is not about like real life hasn't read it enough. 
He says in chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In other words, like a, like a kid scolding his parents, Habakkuk's like, what do you have to say to that, God? I'll just sit here and wait for you to answer. You ever feel like that? Have you ever been through an event that made you question whether God was really God? Like where things went so sideways that you question whether He is really as good as He says He is. I'm not looking for a show of hands. But here's the thing. Even if you haven't actually had those exact thoughts, even if you've never actually questioned the godness of God out loud, the truth is we do this all the time. For example, have you ever panicked because a, a catastrophe caught you off guard? You're totally unprepared, and it really frightened you because you knew that, that it could have lasting effects on your life. Or have you ever had someone do something to you that was so mean, so painful, so conniving that you didn't even bother to think whether it was right. You just went straight into, like, I'm going to tear your face off mode. Because here's the thing, that's just the passive form of what Habakkuk's doing. Being certain that someone or something in your life is a terrible cosmic accident, or being certain that you need to take matters into your own hands, it's the same denial of the godness of God as actively questioning Him. That doesn't change the fact that these things still happen to us. We, we still find ourselves being injured by unrighteous people. It doesn't change the fact that we still question whether God is really as good and as powerful as He says He is. So if that's Habakkuk's complaint, then second, what is God's answer? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 2. God answers Habakkuk, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his, by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples." So back in chapter 2, verse 2, God's like, okay, Habakkuk, I got a craft project for you. I want you to get some cardboard and some paste and some glitter and some pipe cleaners and markers, and I want you to make a sign. And he says, you know how when you hear a politician say, let me be clear, you know whatever's coming next is going to be anything but clear? This is the opposite. He says in the second half of verse 2, 
Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Now this could mean make it clear enough that the reader can see it as you run by them. Or it could mean make it clear enough like a billboard on the, on the freeway so that they can read it as they run by you. It could mean either or. The point is make this as obvious as you can. Metaphorically speaking, I want you to make it so that everyone understands what I'm about to tell you. And then God says in verse 4, this is what I want the sign to say. I want it to have two sides. On one side, I want it to say, the righteous shall live by faith. And on the other side, I want it to say, the arrogant won't. On one side, I want it to say, the righteous shall live by faith. On the other side, I want it to say that the puffed up won't. And I want to make sure we understand what this means because Habakkuk is known for, for using confusing language. So what exactly does he mean when he says the righteous shall live by faith? First, what does faith mean? Well, the most important thing to understand is that God is not, he is not saying that the righteous will live by their faithfulness. God's not saying that your life depends on your ability or your effort or whatever level of faith you're able to muster up. No. That's the heresy that so many false teachers are spewing today. That the reason you're sick or poor or whatever is because you, you don't have enough faith. That's garbage. Jesus himself said all you need is the faith the size of a mustard seed. Which means what God is saying is that it's not the level of your faith but the object of your faith that matters. Meaning the righteous will live by the one in whom they are placing their faith. Or to say it another way, the righteous shall live by trusting in the one who can give them life. In fact, this helps us understand the contrast of the different sides of this vision. If you notice on the other side of this, this sign, it's about the, the arrogant and the proud and the puffed up. The people who he says in verse 5, who, who their arrogance is, is as wide as the grave. Meaning as, as greedy as the grave is for people, that's how wide their arrogance is. They're just greedy. <clears throat> what he's saying is, is that, in other words, on one side of the sign, the righteous shall live by faith, by trusting in the one who will give them life. And on the other side of the sign, that those who think they are self-sufficient, those who think they don't need God, those who think they can do it on their own, they won't live. But that leads us to the second piece of this statement that we need to define, and that's what does God mean by life? Does God mean, as, as Habakkuk stated, that he won't let them die when the Babylonians attack, or is he talking about something else? Well, history helps us with this answer because a lot of righteous people died when the Babylonians attacked. Not to mention... Extending this life sounds good to us because we're comfortable Americans, but for the vast majority of history, extending this life would have been a curse, not a, not, a, not a hope or a comfort. So God's not talking about physical life. What then is he talking about? Well, God is talking about something that Habakkuk probably couldn't have totally understand back, understood back then. He's talking about another life that is far more important than eating or drinking or breathing. He's talking about our spiritual life. 
The theological term is our eschatological life or our eternal life. For example, Jesus told Nicodemus that he must be born again to a new life. Nicodemus was like, I want some of what you're smoking, Jesus. He didn't get it. But then later Paul explained in Ephesians chapter 2 that before we believed in Jesus, just as Bob was saying this morning, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, but we have been made alive in Christ. This is the life that he's talking about. Later Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is the life that God is talking to Habakkuk about. He's telling Habakkuk that the righteous will find eternal life by placing their trust in the one who can give it to them. Not the level of faith we can muster, but faith as small as a mustard seed in a God so big that he created the universe with his words will be how the righteous will find and gain and keep eternal life. Because the power of our faith is not found in us, but in the object of our faith, the God in whom we have faith. What in the world does that have to do with Habakkuk's complaint? What does the righteous living by faith have to do with not understanding why unrighteous people are allowed to attack righteous people? Well, the short answer is this. And I want you to listen because this is what I want you to hear this morning. This morning, what I want you to hear that God is saying to us and to Habakkuk is that the righteous shall live by faith, that God can even use unrighteous people to accomplish His plan. I want you to hear this morning that that the righteous shall live by faith, that God can even use unrighteous people to accomplish His plan. The righteous shall live by faith. They, They shall trust that their God is powerful enough that He can even use the evil and the abuse and the violence and the cruelty of other people. That our God is powerful enough that He can use terrible people doing terrible things to His people to accomplish His plan. And how can I say that with such confidence? Well, you see, there would come another time that would make Habakkuk's objection seem trivial. Another time where the victory of the unrighteous would appear far more unthinkable. In fact, there would be someone else who would object very much in the same way as Habakkuk. You remember what I'm talking about? Once Jesus was explaining to his disciples that he was going to have to suffer and die at the hands of unrighteous men. And just like Habakkuk, the Bible says that Peter pulled Jesus aside and he was like, "Um, Jesus, listen, I know you got good intentions and all, but that ain't going to happen. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. And why would he have such a vehement reaction to that? It's because Jesus knew that God had ordained that he be mocked and beaten and crucified by unrighteous men in order for God to accomplish his plan. But in that sacrifice, in that beating and bleeding and death at the hands of evil men, no less, God broke the bonds of sin and shame for everyone who would believe in him. God used the acts of unrighteous men to accomplish His plan to pay the debt 
that every one of us has piled up by laying it on the shoulders of Jesus Christ as he slowly suffocated to death. And in that victory, on that day when Christ cried out, it is finished. On that day, God proved that what he's telling Habakkuk here is true. That the righteous can live by faith that God can and will accomplish His plan even through unrighteous men doing horrible things. And how did He prove that? He proved that when three days later Jesus walked out of the grave. He proved that when 49 days later Jesus ascended to heaven. And He's been proving it ever since when those who put their faith in him faith in him pass from this life to the next and he says to them well done my good and faithful servant enter my rest the righteous that's you and i brothers and sisters we must live by faith that god can use pain and heartache and suffering and persecution even at the hands of evil people to accomplish his plan for our lives And he proved it once and for all when Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and rose again. That's what I want you to hear this morning. Whether you believe or not, whether you believe in Jesus or not. In fact, if you don't, if you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, I want you to hear this because I want you to have the hope, the, 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 the comfort, the peace. Not that if you try hard enough, everything will go right but that even when things don't go how you want them to, that there's a sovereign God working on your behalf to work all things out for the good of you according to His plan. If that's you, I pray you would believe that this morning. That you would have that hope that's only found in, in believing that Jesus died for your sins. I think a big question is what does this look like actually in our lives today because last time I checked, I don't think we're in danger of being invaded by Babylon. So what does it look like in our lives to live by faith that God can use anything, including unrighteousness, to accomplish His will? What does that actually look like in our lives? Well, let me give you three ways. First, we must live by faith that God is still using our unrighteous leaders to accomplish His plan. That God is still using our unrighteous leaders to accomplish His plan. In other words, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, rather than panicking, as our leaders promote abortion and persecute Christians and, and, and hate God because they want to be Him, we must live by faith that He's still using them to accomplish His plans. And how is that? How can God use them to accomplish His plans? Well, one way God is using our unrighteous leaders to accomplish His plans is He's using them to reveal the true church. He's using wicked men in power of our country to make Christianity uncomfortable and unpopular and difficult so that the Christians who just want the benefits of Christianity find it too costly to, to, to follow and bail. But not only is he revealing his church, he is also using our leaders to refine his church. 
As our leaders descend further and further into morality, immorality and drag our country with them, just as Peter said in 1 Peter 1, we trust in Him, even if for a little while, if necessary, we are grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of our faith can result in glory. We must be those righteous who live by faith that God can even use the unrighteous leaders of our country to reveal and refine His church. But it's not just unrighteous leaders that God uses to accomplish His plan. There's another way this looks in our lives that hits a little closer to home. Listen, because this one is fun. Husbands, God can even use the unrighteousness, the sin even the weakness of your wife to accomplish His plan in your life. He can use your wife's sin to drive you to look to Him for your meaning and identity and strength. And wives, sorry you're not off the hook. The same goes for you. God can use the unrighteousness and sin of your husband to accomplish his plan in your life. All those things you wish your husband said or did or didn't say and didn't do. God can use all those weaknesses of your husband to accomplish his plan of driving you closer to him, to your true husband, to the one who will, who will truly give you meaning and purpose and value and worth. So if or when you, you are really struggling with your spouse's sin, the truth is that your spouse isn't the only one that God's working on. You see, God has ordained that our spouse's sin agitate our sin exactly the way He wants it to in order to bring to the surface the sin He wants to deal with in us, not them. That's why I often call spouses custom-made sanctifying tools. Meaning when it comes to your spouse's sin, that sin that just drives you nuts. Listen, the truth is that God will sometimes not change your spouse's heart until He's done working on yours. So while we stand there saying, God, she's driving me nuts. God, he's driving me crazy. Why, why won't he stop doing this? Why won't she stop doing this? Sometimes God's answer is, is well, it's you. I'm working on you, and I'm using her or him. But let me give you one more way. The righteous, living by faith that God can use the unrighteous or unrighteousness to accomplish his plan. Let me give you one more way that looks like. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer just finished explaining the, the incredible truth that is ours in Jesus. The truth that in Jesus Christ we have access to the Father. The truth that we can confidently go to our Heavenly Father because Jesus has opened the door for those who believe through His death and resurrection. And so because of this, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the confidence that we now have. The confidence that we have that against all visible signs... The confidence that we have that, that even when everything doesn't make sense, 
The confidence that we now have that even when it feels like everything and everyone is against us, we have the confidence to endure. Listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. He says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. He's talking about, remember back when you were first saved and you were just on fire for Jesus. And even the hard stuff was fun. He's like sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. He says, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, he says, do not throw away your confidence. Don't give up which has a great reward. Why? Why does it have a great reward? He says, because you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Here's our passage today that the writer of Hebrews is using, 4, verse 37. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. <clears throat> verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In other words, brothers and sisters, when we live by faith that our God is so powerful and so good and so capable that He can use anything and everything to accomplish His will. When we live by faith in that, we have the opportunity to be those who display His greatness and His power, and His glory, and His mercy, and His love. How is that? How do we display His greatness? It's this way. When after the world is finished throwing everything it's got at us, everything evil, everything vile, everything mean, everything terrible and hurtful and painful, after the world is done throwing everything it's got at us, when we still live by faith that our God can use that, that our God can use their evil to accomplish His plan, when we still live by faith in that, we can be those who display His power when we still endure. We can be those who display His faithfulness when we still don't shrink back. Even if it's not until the day He returns, when we live by faith that our God can use anything He wants to accomplish His plan, even unrighteous people attacking righteous people, when we live by faith that our God can use that to accomplish His plan, even if it's the last day when He comes, we can be those who display His greatness when we prevail. When we go to heaven, we have need for endurance. Right here in this room. And that endurance, that courage, that perseverance that we need, it's going to come through faith. Faith that even when everything in our lives seems to go sideways, our God is still powerful enough to use that to, to complete His plan in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for today. I thank You for the gift of Your Word. I pray, Lord, that You would sink deep into our hearts the truth 
that you are in fact powerful enough and good enough that when evil people and unrighteous people seem to be prevailing, that you are still using them to accomplish your plan. Father, grow that faith in our hearts. Grow that truth in our hearts. And, and Father, let the evidence be what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. That the worst evil that has ever been perpetrated by evil men on a righteous man, you still used that to accomplish your great plan. Let that truth and that proof give us the courage and the power and the hope to endure, thereby showing you more glorious, more great, more powerful, more loving. Father, this is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.